I want to read from you from Mark 6, starting in verse 1. It says, Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. And the next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? Then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and his sisters live right here among us. They, listen to what it says. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Then Jesus told him, a prophet is honored everywhere except his hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. And then it says from the next several verses on that this is the moment where Jesus sent out the 12 two by two, giving them authority to minister just as he did as well. And then jumping down to verse 12, it says, so the disciples went out telling everyone they met to repent of their sins and to turn to God. And they cast out many demons and healed many sick people, anointing them with oil. Father, as we continue in this series on prayer tonight, Lord, I pray that all of us in the coming days would find ourselves more frequently and more passionately in places of prayer. And as we see tonight, Lord, the things that have become obstacles to us that keep us from entering in, Lord, that we would overcome those things, that we would find our prayer voice, and that, Jesus, we would join you before the throne of heaven with the petitions that, Holy Spirit, that you would inspire our heart to see. In Christ's name, come on, and everybody sit together. Amen. We are in this series on prayer. We're in this series all month. Last week, we talked about prayer and politics. So if you weren't with us, you can catch that online. You can either get it through our website or through our YouTube channel. And we, we, we taught you just a, a, a basic definition of prayer. We worship Him, we thank Him, and we petition Him. We worship Him and thank Him and petition Him. And so tonight, I want to talk about this idea of, of are, are there things that are keeping us from entering into places of prayer? Is, is there anything keeping you from entering into prayer? I remember when our kids were little, we had to childproof our home. Any, any, anybody have a childproof home? Anybody in the season of childproofing homes? It, it's quite the undertaking. You don't realize how dangerous your home is until you have children, right? You, 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 you've got latches and pull tabs for all the cabinets and all the drawers. You've got, you don't realize how many outlets you have in your home until you have to buy covers for all of them. Everything that is within arm's reach that is breakable has to be relocated to a height that is beyond their reach. You've got baby monitors. Nowadays, you've got camera systems, motion detectors. How about the gates? There was a whole series of gates all throughout our house. Gates to go up the stairs, gates to go down the stairs, gates to keep them out of rooms we didn't want them to go into, gates to keep them in the room we didn't want them to go out of. All kinds of gates. I remember when Vanessa and I were first married and Derek was born, we would go to my aunt, Aunt Mary, 
who's gone on to be with the Lord, but she would, on my dad's side of the family, every day at Christmas, we would all converge on her house. We would just, she had this little tiny home, we would, we would all, all pack in there. It was funny, because the first time Vanessa met her, uh, Vanessa's family grew up saying aunt, and we grew up saying aunt, and so, so we were practicing, you know, it's Aunt Mary, it's not Aunt Mary. She kept referring to her as Aunt Mary. Honey, it's not Aunt Mary, it's Aunt Mary. We say aunt here, we say aunt. And so she's on the way there, right? She's, she's literally saying it out loud, Aunt Mary, Aunt Mary, Aunt Mary. She, she walks up. It's the first time she's meeting Aunt Mary, and, and, and all the family's there. So, and, and when you walk in, you walk into, right into the living room. There's no foyer. So when everybody, somebody comes in, every, everybody stops and turns and, and greets. And Vanessa's the first one through the door, and she's so proud of herself because she's all ready to say Aunt. And she says, hi, Aunt Mari. And we were all like, Aunt Mari. Right? She's so fun. <laughs> it's so great, isn't it? She's like, dang it! <laughs> she didn't say that out loud, but on the inside, I was like, dear Lord, Aunt Mari. She was, she was so concerned with the awe that just carried right over into the second name. Well, Aunt Mari, in her living room, had a, a marble-topped coffee table. Now, I grew up on Christmas Day in Aunt Mary's house my whole entire life. Whole entire life, right? But when we brought our child into that space, I remember thinking to myself, what kind of wicked woman is this that would have a marble coffee table in her house that can crack children's skulls, right? You begin to judge people when you have children, am I right? You begin to look down on people, you're like, what is wrong with them? Did they not know that children were going to be coming here today? Becoming a parent changes the way that you see the world. All of those things that we do in our homes send a message to our children, don't go in there. My, my question is, has, have we allowed people, circumstances, life experiences, poor teaching about Scripture to create in us obstacles that stop us from entering into spiritual spaces that God wants us to find. Are there things in your life, are there things in my life that stop us from entering into places of prayer? Sometimes we don't even realize it. It's like our children. They just assume that all homes are like this. It's just what they know. And it might be that even now your life is filled with obstacles that are stopping you from entering in to places of prayer. Matthew 23, 1 to 13, it's a chunk, but I, I want to read it. This is a companion text, I believe, to Mark 6. Matthew 23, 1 to 13 says that Jesus said to the crowd, and his disciples, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example. For they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside, and they wear robes with extra long tassels. They love to sit at the head of the table at banquets and in the seats of honor in the synagogues. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi. Don't let anyone call you rabbi, for you have only one teacher, 
and all of you are equal as brothers and sisters. And don't address anyone here on earth as father, for only God in heaven is your father. And don't let anyone call you teacher, for you have only one teacher, the Messiah. The greatest among you must be a servant. I just want to pause here. God's, Jesus isn't saying it's wrong to call people father. What he's saying is it's wrong to look to fathers to provide for you what only your heavenly father can and he's not saying that it's wrong to, right, when you go back to school, don't tell your kids, don't call him teacher. Pastor Fred read it in the Bible. You can't call people teacher. Right? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, don't assign authority to earthly teachers the authority that only God should reserve in your life. The greatest among you must be a servant, but those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Here it comes. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the door to the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves, and you don't let others enter either. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of this chapter, but in Matthew 23, Jesus repeats this phrase, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites. He repeats that same sentence seven times. Seven times. It is scorched earth preaching here by Jesus. And he's not doing it when they're not there. It's not as though that in an effort to protect their privacy and their dignity and he doesn't want to hurt anybody's feelings, that he's giving people warnings about the religious leaders and the Pharisees. No, they're in the crowd while he's saying it over and over and over and over again. It's important that we understand that Jesus is kind and gentle, but he's not only kind and gentle. Sometimes Jesus is also verbally violent. And it's important that we learn how to Follow the Holy Spirit so we're presenting the right Jesus to the world in the right moment. He's not all of just one or the other. The, the same Jesus that is oftentimes not responding, we see him in moments like this. He's responding aggressively and intently. It's not rage, it's righteous indignation. Because to Jesus, when people began to create obstacles in other people's lives that keep them from entering into spiritual places to Jesus, it's serious business. Jesus in the sermon here in Matthew 23, he's coming after the religious leaders, but it's interesting, the reason why he's coming after these religious leaders is not just because of their sin, it's because they were victims often to sin. And it breaks Jesus' heart that these obstacles are keeping people from entering in. So I'm asking you again tonight to ask yourself, are there any obstacles in your life that are keeping you from entering into prayer? Because I believe that in Mark 6, verses 1 through 13, that we find a couple of obstacles that get easily built into our lives. Again, I think it's a companion text. I think Jesus in Matthew 23 is talking about not entering in and why that can happen, that obstacles can get put into our lives, sometimes unbeknownst to us. And then here in Mark 6, he gives us a couple that you and I can begin to ask ourselves some hard questions, are these obstacles present in me? Somebody say offense. Are you offended by God in some way? Are you offended by God in some way. See, what we see here in Mark chapter 6, that there 
offense that we see in the text stop them from entering into a place of prayer. It literally says that Jesus wanted to minister in prayer in his hometown, but because they were offended by him, they would not go into this place of prayer with him. They were offended, and it stopped them from entering into prayer with Jesus. Look at verse 2 and 3 in Mark 6. It says, The next Sabbath he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. They asked, Where did he get all of this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? And when they scoffed, he's just the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Judas, and Simon, and his sisters live right here among us. Listen to what it says. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Are you offended by God in some way? Now, if we're not careful, we'll look at Mark 6, and we'll think that it is a retelling of the same story that we find in Luke 4, but it is not. Luke 4 is the first time Jesus went to Nazareth and wanted to minister and was rejected by his own people in his hometown. Mark 6 is actually two complete years later. Two years later, Jesus is circling back one more time, and here again they reject him. Listen to Luke 4. This is the first time, two years prior, beginning in verse 16. It says, when he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read scripture. The scroll of Isaiah, the prophet, was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where this was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released and the blind will see. And then he continues on and then he says, on this day, this scripture is fulfilled. It says, when they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of a hill on which the town was built, and they intended to push him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went his way. Jesus was rejected by his own. Two years later, he comes back. What's he been doing for these two years? He's been doing incredible things over these last two years. And you better believe that all of Israel knew of his reputation. He had raised the dead. He had healed all manner of disease. He has healed all manner of condition and blindness and people who were deaf. He delivered people from demons. He exercised power over nature. He calmed storms. Come on. He demonstrated supreme wisdom of Scripture. I love that Jesus says, I'm going to give you a second chance. For two years... He's been proving that he was the Messiah. But yet, when he comes back, what does he find? He finds offense. Offense is a powerful obstacle for you and I to overcome. Here was Jesus himself, the Son of God, standing before them. And because of their offense, they would not enter into prayer with him. I think the reason they were so deeply offended by Jesus is because he was ignoring all the social and religious norms that were expected of someone conducting themselves as a rabbi. This is one of the reasons why being offended with God can be so subtle. It's because we have a preconceived idea about what God should not and should do for us, and when he's not doing what we expect, we become offended by him. I don't even think that they realized they were offended by Jesus. What they knew was that Jesus wasn't doing it the right way, and it bothered them deeply. I try to share this at least once a year. I'm fascinated by what was required for someone to enter into rabbinical training. 
Every single boy in Jesus's day, every single boy in Jesus's day was sent off to study to become a rabbi. Ages six through 10, the Torah was memorized. That's the first five books of the Bible. Can you, many of you homeschooled your children last year. Well, what if those of you who have six to 10 year olds, your task was over the next couple of years for them to memorize chapter and verse, the first five books of the Bible. What in the world? We're just going to look at ours and say, this idea of being a rabbi is not in your future, child. (laughs) For four years. And at the end of that four years, only the most gifted were allowed to move forward in their training. They entered in what was called the House of Learning, Beit Talmud. And then for the next four years, listen to me, ages 10 to 14, they memorized chapter and verse the entire rest of the Old Testament. The entire rest of the Old Testament, if they were still in their school of rabbinical training, by the age of 14, they would have memorized Genesis to Malachi chapter and verse. And then, at the age 14, still, only a select few would be invited by their rabbi to continue on to become an understudy. It was called the house of study, Beit Midrash. And the phrase that they would use would be, come and follow me, which is one of the reasons why all of the disciples, when Jesus said, come and follow me, were so enthralled by that moment, because what we know is by virtue of the fact that they were all pursuing the vocation of their father, it meant that at some point a rabbi had told them that they weren't good enough. So now that a rabbi is circling back and saying, I'm picking you, It was an honor in their culture that was beyond all else. The reason why in Mark 6 it tells us that the people in his hometown call him a carpenter, this isn't just commentary to give us some type of context for Jesus' vocation. It is a slander that they are giving in this moment because what they're saying is the reason that you're a carpenter is because at some point you yourself failed out of school to be a rabbi. So don't be coming around here pretending to be our teacher. You're just a carpenter, a failure yourself. Have you been carrying an expectation of God in some way that he has not met? Or are you offended by God in some way? And is that offense keeping you from entering into prayer? I'm trusting that for some of you, whether you're here in person or watching online, that it could be that the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, this is you. You, you, You've got an unmet expectation that you don't even realize has become an offense, and it's become a gate in your life that's keeping you from entering into a place of prayer that God has for you. Psalm 13 is an incredible chapter that tells us what we're supposed to do when we have an unmet expectation. So much of the Psalms are David's heart cry because the expectation that he has of God are not being met. Psalm 13, beginning in verse one, says, O Lord, how long will you forget me forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? Every day. How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, O Lord. 
Restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat, saying we have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. Here it comes. I will rejoice because you have rescued me, even though he's not yet rescued. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. It's almost like there are verses that are missing in the song, but they're not. It's a formula for us to follow. When you have an unmet expectation, if you feel like God's not done something that he was supposed to do, maybe you grew up with a certain idea of who God is and what he would do for you, and then all of a sudden the God that you're finding in the reality of your life is different from what you expected and you've become offended by him, the best thing that you can do is to do what David did is, is to bring that to God himself. Confessing the feeling that you have that God has not kept his promise, we bring it to him. You confess it, and then you have to do something that we're going to call overcome it. You confess it so that you can overcome it. In the same way that when Jesus ministered healing to people, oftentimes they had to do something to step into the healing. It's like when he would heal the paralytic, it says that he would say to them, take up your mat. He wanted them to get up. They, they had to step into the healing that had already been given to them. They had to overcome. They had to, through an act of their will, choose to not stay in that place of disappointment. Confess it. You've got to overcome it. You've got to make a willful decision to say, I'm not going to let this disappointment define me anymore, and I'm not going to let this disappointment remain a gate in front of me that keeps me from entering into prayer. And then you've got to replace it. This is what David does. He actually begins to offer a praise that speaks of the situation that he hopes he's one day going to find, even though it's not yet his reality. Confess it overcome it and replace it. Remove the gate of offense that's standing between you and prayer. Somebody say narrative. Sometimes it's an offense that keeps us from entering into a place of prayer, but sometimes it's also a narrative. Is your narrative of God incomplete in some way? Is your narrative of God incomplete in some way? Because in Mark 6, what we find is their incomplete narrative that we see in this text stopped them from entering into prayer with Jesus. Let me read verses 4 through 6. Then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. It's fascinating, isn't it? There are, are not too many places in Scripture where we see that the sovereignty of God is limited by humankind. Now, that creates, creates a theological conundrum from all of us, and we're never going to understand the answer to that. This is one of those verses we have to live with the tension of the mystery. But their unbelief, the fact that they had an idea about who Jesus was and who he wasn't, that stopped them from entering into a place of prayer. Reading back to verses two through three, it says, the next Sabbath he began teaching in the synagogue and many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? They scoffed, he's just a carpenter's son, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and his sisters live right here among us. See, what we find here is that everything about Jesus they knew was accurate 
Everything about Jesus that they believed was true, but everything about Jesus they accepted was incomplete. See, what in their list, they're not saying anything that's not true. They're not saying anything that's not accurate. It's just they're missing the whole other half of who he is. So, so you might have a narrative of who God is and everything that you've accepted about him and believe him could actually be true. It's not as though there's false thinking. That's another sermon for another time. It could be everything you believe about God is right. It could just be that it's not yet finished and it's incomplete. In Mark 6, 2 to 3, we're, we're, we're told many details about his humanity, but he is far more than that. Listen to Colossians 1, 13 to 20. I love these verses. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before everything else. He holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead, so he is first in everything. For God, in all his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ. And through God, and through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood and on the cross. This is the rest of who Jesus is. The, the people of his hometown knew he, who he was in his humanity, but they had yet to have a revelation of his divinity. Their narrative was incomplete. Is your narrative of God incomplete? And is that incomplete narrative keeping you from entering into prayer? Do you have an, an undiscovered offense? Do you have an incomplete narrative? These are gates that come in and stop us from entering into a place of prayer. Listen to Matthew 7, 7 through 11. It says, keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. Everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be open. You parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your, will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? I don't know how your narrative might be incomplete, but when I read those verses, there are three things here that I see that you need to believe and know about God. It's not the only three things that you need to know about him, but if you believe these three things, I'm telling you, your narrative about him will begin to fill in, and you will find yourself entering into prayer like maybe you never have before. The first one is that God knows you personally. He knows you personally. You're not just a part of humankind. You're not just a part of a crowd to him. You, you don't just share in this mass of humanity. 
He knows you by name. The Bible says incredible things like knowing the number of hairs that are on your head, that he knew you even from the foundations of the earth. Can you believe that? In the beginning of time, God looked out into the expanse of time and saw you. Not just all people, he saw you. In the Psalms, we read that he knew us even when we were being woven together in the wombs of our mothers. He, he knows you personally. He knows your story. He knows your destiny. He knows you personally. He cares for you deeply. Can we just say that in and of itself is remarkable? Because the more most people get to know us, the less likely we are to be loved because of the depravity of who we are, because of our own selfishness, because of all of our mistakes. Isn't it remarkable that God knows every deed? He actually knows all the bad things that you're going to do that you haven't even dreamed of yet. And he cares for you all the more. Don't you love that Jesus came back to Nazareth one more time? Don't you love that Jesus knew that Jesus was going to betray him, but yet he invited him to be one of the 12? Not because he needed a patsy, but because he wanted Judas to have one more chance to turn his heart to him. He knows you personally, he cares about you deeply, and he listens to you intently. He listens to you intently. We've all seen the picture of the child trying to get their mother's attention or their father's attention. And sometimes that's a training moment for the child because they need to learn that the world does not revolve around them. Growing Kids God's Way 101. But, but some, sometimes, sometimes, it's because that child lives in a world where they're always having to clamor for their parents' attention and that attention is never given. So, sometimes it's because that child's soul aches to believe that someone wants to listen to them. Just like our soul aches to believe that God wants to listen to us. Every day that you and I wake up, Every day, God thinks, will they talk to me today? He's listening. The picture of the father and the story of the prodigal son is the picture of God with us all the days of our lives, waiting and longing for us to kneel before him. Is there an offense? Is there an incomplete narrative that you have that's stopping you from entering into a place of prayer. Because this place of prayer is significant for us because prayer in itself is often the gateway into our future. Chris, I'm just going to keep going and I'll, I'll close at some point. Uh, how many people from Nazareth were supposed to be there in Luke 10? And how many missed out on what God had for them? How many people from Nazareth were supposed to be there in Luke 10? You might say, we haven't even read Luke 10 yet. I know, we're about to. How many missed out on what God had for them? See, there are obstacles that keep us from entering into prayer. And, and, and then prayer becomes a gateway unto itself for our destiny. Luke 9, 1 to 6 reads this way. One day Jesus called together his 12 disciples. This is a 
mirroring or a retelling of the same thing we read in Mark 6. One day Jesus called together his 12 disciples and gave them power and authority to cast out all demons and to heal all diseases. Then he sent them out to tell everyone about the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Take nothing All right, Luke 9. I'm missing that page in my notes. Give me a second. Matthew, Mark, Luke 9. I should do this on purpose every now and again, just so you know I know where the books of the Bible are. (laughs) Take nothing for your journey, instructed them. Don't take a walking stick, a traveler's bag, food or money, or even a change of clothes. Wherever you go, stay in the same house until you leave town. And if a town refuses to welcome you, shake its dust from your feet. And as you leave, to show that you have abandoned those people to their fate. So they began the circuit of villages preaching the good news and healing the sick. And then some of the the gospels that tells us when they come home, they're so excited about what happened. But sometimes we forget that they weren't the only people that Jesus sent out. As we move forward in time, we come to Luke 10. Let me read verses 1 through 4. It says, now the Lord chose 72. You you might say, I didn't even hear of the 72. I know, you should read the Bible. The Lord now chose 72 other disciples and sent them ahead in pairs to all the towns and to places that he planned to visit. And these were his instructions to them. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into the field. Now go and remember that I'm sending you as lamb amongst wolves. Don't take any money with you nor traveler's bag or extra pair of sandals and don't stop to greet anyone on the road, right? Their task was urgent. Jumping down to verse 17, we read this. And when the 72 disciples returned, they joyfully reported to him, Lord, even demons obey us when we use your name. Stop. Mark 6. Let's read it again. Then Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth. He didn't have the 72 ready to send out yet. He was getting the 12 ready. He's been ministering for, 12, for, for two years. He's circling back to Nazareth one more time, one more time. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? Then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. I think one of the reasons why Jesus' heart was broken for them was not just because they weren't willing to enter into the ministry of prayer with him in his own hometown to minister to to the sick and to heal those that had come. I think one of the reasons why his heart was broken is because he looked at some of them and knew they were supposed to be a part of the 72. See, when Jesus went from town to town, there were people that joined in with him. His crowd began to grow. It's why here he's just sending out 12, but by the time he gets to Luke 10 in the timeline, The entourage is bigger. Now he's picking 72 to go out. How many people in Nazareth were supposed to be sent out and to be a part of that 72? How many people in Nazareth were supposed to be in verse 17 of Luke 10, coming back excited 
in a state of disbelief, not because they were offended by Jesus, but in a state of disbelief that God could use them to do the same work that they saw Jesus himself doing. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. Have you ever noticed in Mark 6 that it tells us that Jesus was surprised, that Jesus was surprised at their unbelief? Now, I find this fascinating because when I think about who Jesus is, what we're told in Luke 5, especially verse 22, it tells us, it tells us that Jesus knows people's thoughts. So you tell me how hard is it to surprise someone who already knows what's going to happen? You, you've been there, right? Somebody you know is trying to throw your surprise birth, birthday party of some kind and you find out you're trying so hard to pretend like you're surprised. But that's not Jesus in the story. Jesus isn't pretending to be surprised he, even though he knew that they were going to disappoint him. It caught him off guard. Why is that? It's not because he's not all-knowing it's, it's, it's not because he didn't have his powers on that day. It's because that's how much he loves us. Even when he knows we're going to fail, even though he knows it's coming, that there's this hopefulness in his heart that, that maybe, j- just maybe, just maybe, we're going to choose a better way. And, and so as we think about our lives, I'm hoping that in this series that you're asking yourself some hard questions. Am I entering into the place of prayer as much as God would want me to do? Is prayer as much a part of your lives as our Father in Heaven longs for it to be? And if it's not, is it, be, is it because that you've allowed an unmet expectation, an incomplete narrative, a disappointment, a poor teaching? Have you let people or circumstances come into your life and create obstacles to spiritual places that don't belong there? And if you have, let's, let's start taking those things out. Because there is access to the throne room of heaven that you and I have that he wants us to find. Stand with me. Stand with me. Jesus, we bless your name. We bless your name. Jesus, you give us this incredible picture of yourself in Romans chapter 8. where we find that Jesus, you yourself are kneeling before the throne of heaven, posturing yourself in a place of intercession on our behalf. 
You, the King of Kings. You, the Lord of Lords. You, you, you the one that is so majestically described in Colossians chapter one. You, you kneeling before the Father, making intercessions for all of us. And, and I just don't wonder, are there times, Jesus, where, where you just, you pause and you, you open your eyes and, and look over your shoulder into the realm of this earth to see who might be kneeling with you? You who's interceding for us with an open invitation for us to enter in, would it be that for those of us in this room, for those of us that are listening online, could it be that as you look over your shoulder that you're going to find us present a little bit more than we have been? Could it be that you're, you're going to find us entering into a place of prayer more than we have before? Could it be that you're going to find us kneeling before the throne with you, making intercessions not just for ourselves, bringing petition not just for ourselves, but for the needs of all that we know. That Jesus, just as you make intercession for us, would it be that we would find ourselves in that place of prayer, making intercessions for others, especially, especially this week for the persecuted church. Find us entering in, entering into spiritual places. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said, amen. Hey, just don't forget, just like with every service at the end, we're going to have people down here at the front to pray. So if you want to hang out and, and talk, could you just make sure you do that somewhere else? So, sometimes you do a good job with that. Sometimes you don't, right? I know there's people here you want to see. You cannot see them up here while we're trying to minister in prayer. You with me? Last week, we had to actually move to a different place because people were hanging out and laughing. We want you to hang out and laugh. You just can't do that up here while we're trying to minister to people in prayer. So you can hang out in the foyer, the back of the sanctuary, the cafe, outside. But if you need prayer, the band's going to continue to play. We're going to be here for you. If not, we'll see you next week.